You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. All right, quiet on the set. Camera speed. Sound production, take one. Action! Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era. Hear fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine, who quite literally lives just beneath the Hollywood sign, and actress-writer Nan McNamara. Now your hosts, Steve and Nan. Steve, Lindsay, and I are celebrating a big anniversary this year. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, we're celebrating 20 years. Wow. It just went by in a heartbeat. That's amazing. Yeah, or or <laughs> as a friend of ours says, when he said that he was married for 35 years, we said, did it seem like he'd been married a long time? And he said, like 35 minutes <laughs> underwater. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's a, a way to segue into our topic, because we're going to be talking about couples that were married that they didn't quite make it to 20 and some of them didn't even make it to five. Well, you know, sometimes Cupid gets it right, but you know, sometimes Cupid gets it wrong. Yes. And let's talk about those. They're, they're kind of sometimes more interesting to talk about. Yes, yes. Our first couple is Betty Grable and Jackie Coogan. Who would have ever thought those two people would be together? No, I would not have matched them up. I know. It's funny because I don't think most people even know who Jackie Coogan is. Maybe a few people from our generation will remember him from the Adams Family where he played Uncle Fester. Yes. And he is, if you're a lover of film, you know him from The Coogan Law, which plays into his story with Betty Grable. It absolutely does. And thank God for him, because he really did change laws to protect child actors so that their greedy parents didn't spend all their money. 
which is kind of what happened to him. So how did he meet Betty Grable? They met at Catalina off the coast of Los Angeles. Oh. Um, Coogan was there on a little vacation, and he was introduced to this young, pretty actress named Betty Grable. And Coogan had already made a number of movies. He was already a kid star, and he was, at this point, he's in his, I think he's in his late teens, almost. I don't think he's quite 20. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's around the same age. And Grable had been a chorus girl. She had just gotten under contract at Paramount Pictures, which was a big break for her. So okay. she wasn't quite the pinup girl that we sure, know today. Sure. She was this up-and-coming young actress. There was an immediate spark and attraction, and soon they're in this big romance. They're photographed all over town at every swanky nightclub and restaurant you can imagine. And during that time, since you know she was just starting out and he was this well-established, wealthy actor, right. people kind of wondered if maybe she was a gold digger, that she oh, was after his money. Right. Because he's not Clark Gable. <laughs> if you remember him as a kid... Just imagine him looking kind of the same, but maybe 19 or 20. (laughs) Right. So that's why rumors were started. Yes. They were really hot and heavy, and I think they truly cared for each other, although probably not the most perfect match in the world. But their mothers were vehemently against them being together. Both mothers. Both mothers were like not having any part of this. And they knew that they were inching closer and closer to marriage. So Betty Grable's mother begged her to at least wait until she's 21 to marry. Well, it just didn't happen. She, I think they got married on November the 20th, 1937, a month shy of her 21st birthday. Okay, okay. <laughs> so love was too much. She, yes. had, to, she had to marry her man. <laughs> and as her star is beginning to rise, the studio is happy to capitalize, right, on their marriage. Oh, yes. A and great PR, I think, yeah. event for the studios. Sure. So they were in a couple of movies together. They did. They did. The powers at B put them together in, in College Swing in 1938 and then Million Dollar Legs in 1939, which is where she's starting to capitalize on the yes, figure, on the, whole, the legs, the, the whole image. Sure, that we know so well now. Yeah. So Jackie is waiting to receive the fortune that he made as a young actor from his mother and stepfather. They had been handling his financial affairs. So while he's waiting for that money to come, which I'm assuming was an age thing, they're living off the money that Betty made at Paramount. at Paramount. Much to her dismay. Yes. Here he is, this wealthy, wealthy actor, and they're having to live off her very modest contract fee of maybe a hundred bucks a week. Right. Which still back then was more than that. Right. So finally, Betty Grable urges Coogan, go to your parents, get access to your money so we can live and start our life together. Well, Coogan went to his parents and they refused to give him access to his own money. So he ended Uh, up having to take them to court just to get access to it. His own parents. His own parents, his mom and stepdad. Right. Well, of course, he was convinced that the court would rule in his favor. He would soon get access to his money. He would have his money. They could start their life. It would be a beautiful thing. Well, the big shocker was when it did go to court and all the accounts were revealed in court, he had no money. Oh, his parents, his stepfather and his mother. They had blown through his millions of dollars and, and they spent it on diamonds and furs and fancy cars and they lived like kings and he had nothing left because nobody was there to protect him. Which is why the Coogan Law exists today to protect child actors 
from relatives or people that say they're taking care of them from stealing their money. Yes. And I think that this revelation that he had no money definitely put a strain on their relationship. I'm sure it did. And ultimately, it was the unraveling of the two of them. I think Betty Grable got tired of footing the bill and they eventually divorced in 1939. So they get divorced. Betty goes on to an infamous on-again, off-again relationship with George Raft and she later marries the band leader, Harry James. Jack he would marry three more times to three young starlets. <laughs> he had a type. But Betty and Jackie remained friends. They did, in spite of it all. In spite of being the most unlikely couple ever, <laughs> they stayed friends. Let's move on to Greer Garson and Richard Ney. Oh, this is a good one. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. Of course, Greer Garson, everybody knows. She was discovered by Louis B. Mayer. When she was on stage in Europe, he found her, he brought her to America, he built her into one of the most popular films actresses we had during the 40s. And this all led up to the making of the film Mrs. Miniver, which of course she won the Oscar for. 1942. 1942. But not only did she win the Oscar for Mrs. Miniver, she got (laughs) something else off of that set too. (laughs) She found love in the form of one of her castmates. In fact, it was Richard Ney who played her son. Her son, who is only 12 (laughs) years younger than her. Let's just say that now. Even that's interesting that they would cast somebody. The age gap would be so small playing mother and son. Right. I think of Angela Lansbury in Manchurian Candidate. But 12 years is not that much of a difference. But I think during this time period. As they started to date, Louis B. Mayer, who, of course, she was under contract to, he hated this relationship. Okay. He knew that it was going to give his golden goose bad publicity. Right. And it did. And it did. The public really did not take a shining to this older woman dating this young actor who played her son in a movie. Yeah. I still <laughs> think the public does not like women no. going out with younger men. And it's wrong. I mean, it's wrong, it's wrong that it is. people feel that way. But it, it absolutely is. They were in love. Greer was determined to marry him. And she did. So July 24th, 1943, they tie the knot. Right after that, Ney joined the Navy and was shipped overseas. Okay. Which really changed everything. Greer regained her popularity. She went on to great movie after great movie, was still a number one, or was still a very popular actress at MGM. Right. But Ney ended up returning from the service, and he wasn't able to restart his career. Okay. Which was the beginning of the problem, because he grew very resentful of Greer's fame and her money, her popularity. And it was not a good thing. Yeah, so his insecurity got in the way. And in an attempt to save the marriage, Greer takes a year off from acting. I I think that's very admirable. That's pretty generous. She wanted to make it work so badly that she left her career for a year. Right, right. But But, it still didn't work. (laughs) Yeah, it still didn't work. And he didn't get along with her mother who was living with them? Yes. Apparently, Greer Garson was very attached, almost codependent on her mother. Okay. As a lot of Hollywood actresses were in those days. You think Ginger Rogers or so many of them. Right. But yes, she lived with them, which could not be healthy for a young newlywed couple. Sure. So after four years of marriage, they now go through a very nasty public divorce. nasty divorce. divorce. He he was so harsh to her during the the marriage. I mean, and, and Greer Garson had to testify in court about this. I mean, she told the court that he was emotionally abusive 
He would call her a has-been. He would make fun of her age. I mean, it was really harsh the way he treated her. And he really didn't have much of a career after that. No, he really didn't. But I find it funny that after the divorce, Greer ended up getting the last laugh Uh because MGM decided to make a sequel to the wildly popular and profitable Mrs. Miniver. They called it The Miniver Story, 1950. Well, Nay's character was cut out. Hmm. (laughs) Wonder if Greer had anything to do with that. I wonder. So don't mess with Greer. All right, our next couple. This is quite a powerhouse couple. Rita Hayworth and Orson Welles. Again, one of the most unlikely couplings in Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, although both so such huge stars, but yes, yes. Yes, can't see that working. Ever. It was so big and oafish, and she was Rita Hayworth. She was Rita Hayworth, yes, yes. But you know what? I guess it wasn't all about looks. No, it wasn't. But they did come from two very different backgrounds, right? Yes. I didn't realize that he was raised in Wisconsin by a wealthy family, Yeah, yeah. He came from a really nice stock of family in the Midwest, but his mother was very doting. I mean, she's the one who really created this whole boy genius image for him. Mothers and And sons. And mothers and sons. (laughs) We should do a whole episode Yes, we could, we could. (laughs) But I think she gave him that self-confidence where, you know, he was able to go on and reach such heights in the film industry. And and Rita came from just such (sighs) a tragic background. She had a really rough background. Her father was a dancer and made Rita his partner and was abusive, I think, emotionally, I think, sexually. Mm -hmm. Um, It really was an unhealthy relationship. And all her father did was pardon the expression, but hoard her out because he wanted to make a star out of her to bring in money. Okay. It was all about the money and he saw her as a commodity and what he could make off of her, which is horrible. Yeah. And I think it had a lot to do with how Rita viewed men and her relationships with men her entire life. Sure. Well, Orson Welles, as we all know, in his 20s, he's already made a name for himself with um, the Mercury Theater yes. and Citizen Kane. and <laughs> He scared the hell out of America with uh, the War of the, the War Worlds, of the Worlds. Yeah, <laughs> radio yeah. broadcast where people thought that aliens were attacking New Jersey. Yeah, and, and he surrounded himself with some of the most amazing artists of the yes. time, Joseph Cotton, Geraldine Fitzgerald, Agnes Moorhead, <laughs> Norman Lloyd, who we've yes. talked about before. Vincent Price and John Houseman. I mean, the Mercury players, I mean, they were the just the top of the top, yeah. upper echelon of, of the acting world. So you have these two forces in these in these two people. You've got Orson, who's got this confidence and this swagger, and you've got Rita, who's insecure. And they come together because Orson Welles first saw Rita in <laughs> Life magazine. Is he that right? He did. He saw the famous photo in Life of her in the black negligee on yes, the bed, and he okay. just fell in love with her. He fell in love with the photo. I want to meet that girl. So he kept, you know, just bombarding her with requests for dinner. You know, have dinner with me, have dinner with me. She would always politely decline and he finally wore her down. Okay. (laughs) And she agreed to dinner. And they fell in love. Yeah, they fell in love. And by this time, Rita is now under contract with Columbia Studios. Okay. And Harry Cohn is making a big star out of her. Even though she just had no self-confidence, she had no belief in herself, but she was on the brink of becoming a major, major star. So they get married and they actually have a child together. They do. A baby girl named Rebecca. So they're settling into a kind of a home life, but 
but one of them is never home. <laughs> no, I, exactly. I, you know, on paper, it was kind of exciting. They're both big stars. Sure. They get together. They marry. They're playing house. But I think part of the problem was that Rita Hayworth was very emotionally needy, and he was not. And he and that really turned him off, and it really pushed him away, her emotional neediness. And he was so focused on the films that he was creating yes. and completely driven to create the next Yes. <laughs> Create the next Citizen Kane. <laughs> the next big thing. Throughout their marriage, there was rumors that he cheated on her constantly, which finally she'd had enough. I mean, she left him once. She came back to him. More cheating. And eventually she got the strength to ask for a divorce, which is what she did. So they got a divorce and then they work together again? Well, she was contractually obligated to I make see. the lady from Shanghai, okay. which he was directing, which is now a famous story because he treated her so horribly on set. He famously made her cut her beautiful red locks into this oh. kind of harsh bleach blonde haircut really made her a life wig, a Orson, what about a wig? Well, I think it was part of him being the puppet master yeah. and, and really having fun at her expense. Right. But the great part is the movie's fantastic. Ah. The chemistry is palpable. You can feel the tension. You can almost feel everything created offset, offset. on screen. Yeah. It's such a good movie. Yeah. But that was their last time to be together. Now, Rita would go on to marry three more times, including uh, with Dick Hames, the singer and actor. Who was a, a loser in, in, of his own right. There's a whole story about him I won't even get into. But there's, yeah, bad guy and, again. And Orson went on to marry again and had many, many girlfriends. Many, many girlfriends. <laughs> well, I think it's time for our Hollywood pop quiz. Well... With all this love in the air. Yeah, or, or not. <laughs> or not. Um, you know, one of the most famous horrible couples ever was Ernest Borgnine and Ethel Merman, yes. which we've actually talked about on a prior. Yes. You know, they were married for 42 days. In Ethel Merman's autobiography, there's a chapter called My Marriage to Ernest Borgnine, and it's a blank page. <laughs> So that tells you a lot. That's amazing. Well, the question is, when Ernest Borgnine met Ethel Merman, he was in the process of divorcing another high-profile actress. Who was it? All right. We'll be back with the answer and more of Cupid's epic fails after epic this. fails. <laughs> <laughs> Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws, I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. 
Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Stephen, it'll be right back. But first, another stop on the Hollywood tour. Just a few minutes ago, they were talking about Orson Welles and Rita Hayworth. Well, Operation Crossroads involved the fourth atomic bomb ever to be detonated. That was in 1946. And that bomb was decorated with a photograph of Rita Hayworth. She had just released the film Gilda that same year. Now, on the bomb itself, just above that photo, was the name Gilda. Someone stenciled it there in black letters. The idea had been a tribute to Hayworth and her bombshell status. Well, it didn't go over too well. In fact, Hayworth was furious and offended by that gesture. Her then-husband, Orson Welles, said it was the angriest he had ever seen her be. She actually wanted to go to Washington to hold a press conference. But Harry Cohn at Columbia Pictures wouldn't let her. He said it would be unpatriotic. And now back to Stephen Ann from Beneath the Hollywood Sign. Our next epic fail <laughs> is... Paulette Goddard and Burgess Meredith. Once again, Steve. Who would have ever put them together? I can't imagine them being put together. I know, here she was, the beautiful pinup girl of Paramount Pictures, and he's the penguin. He's the penguin from Batman. <laughs> he's Rocky Balboa's trainer in the Rocky films. But back in the day, he was, as you call him, a stud. He was a total stud. <laughs> now, and it wasn't necessarily his looks <laughs> or his stature, but he was known for his sense of humor and his Intellect. intelligence. Yes. And you know what? There ain't nothing more attractive in a man than that, I got to S- tell you. Smart is sexy. Yep. It smart is. and funny is sexy. It, it is. And I mean, he dated some of the most incredible women of the day. I mean, he dated Ingrid Bergman, wow. Carol Landis, who we've talked about. Yes. Olivia de Havilland, Norma Shearer, the, the queen of MGM. Wow. I mean, he had a way with the ladies. Yeah. They were just charmed by him. That he, he was irresistible. And I think it was all because he had the silver tongue. Yeah. He knew how to talk to a woman and he knew how to engage and be interesting. And I, I love that about I him. I do too. And it worked with Paulette Goddard. So she is a movie star, huge at the time. Oh, she was at the top of her game when they began dating. I mean, you know, she, of course, everyone knows that she got her start with her first husband, Charlie Chaplin, in Modern Times in 1936. She appeared in so many hit movies, The Women, The Cat and the Canary. So she is just at the apex of her career. Right. Now, they both had been married twice before? Yes. Before they met each other? Yes. Because I think she joked when they finally got together, maybe third time will be the charm for both of us. Yes. Well, it wasn't. (laughs) It wasn't. Well, they were friends first. Yes. And then it became romantic. So she begins dating Burgess in 1943. Well, she was dating a a lot of people I know she in was 1943. Dating, <laughs> including, I mentioned him earlier, Clark Gable. Clark Gable. And she, I think she was also dating pretty seriously at the same time so, studs. I mean, good looking, the people you would think that Paulette Goddard would yeah, be dating. And then they, here comes. They didn't make her laugh. Here so comes there you go. Burgess. <laughs> so they got married pretty quickly. They did. And they got married at the home of David Oselsnick and his wife, Irene, which. Why does everything <laughs> track back to David Oselsnick? I know. There's which, something going on there. David Oselsnick must have been like just the vortex of Hollywood. <laughs> yes, yes. They were living a really glamorous life. They were splitting time between LA and New York. They had a beach house. Yes, but I think it was chaotic for them too. I think it was glamorous. No structure. Kind of crazy and chaotic. Yeah. Kind of like they were. Yeah. Having parties with 
all their Hollywood friends because everybody knows everybody and yes. hanging out with John Garfield and John, John Huston and all kinds of people. Yeah, Evelyn Keys, who we Evelyn spoke Keys, of last yeah. week. Yeah. So they are married, and in October of 1944, Paulette suffered a miscarriage. Yes. And that probably put a strain on the marriage. Yeah, and I think this might have been sort of the beginning of the end for them. I, I don't know that they ever really worked through it because they ended up spending less and less time together. He would be on the East Coast. She would be on the mm. West Coast. She would be busy on a movie. They just drifted apart. There wasn't an inciting incident. There wasn't a fight. There wasn't a, an affair. They just realized, I think, after a period of time and after the miscarriage that they just didn't have that much in common. Okay. Which And so it just it fizzled. So they divorce in 49, but that quiet before the storm, <laughs> right? <laughs> it was indeed, because then Meredith, he marries pretty quickly to a woman named Cara Sunston, less than a year after his Mexican divorce from Paulette Goddard. Okay, wow. Which is, you know, fine and dandy. Yeah. But then Paulette Goddard gets a little surprised when she finds out that Burgess Meredith is suing her for $400,000. What? <laughs> Why? Well, I guess he claimed this was his half of their community property when they were married. Oh. Well, Paulette, who we all know was a firecracker, was not going to take this line down. So she countersued. Okay. And then she questioned the validity of the Mexican divorce, <laughs> which would put his new marriage in jeopardy. <gasps> oh, boy. So he quickly settled out of court. Oh, okay. <laughs> we, don't, we don't know what happened there. We don't know. But yeah. it, it quickly went away when Paulette was saying, well, we might still be married. So you might have an illegal wedding there. Now, both Burgess Meredith and Paulette Goddard, they... They both go on to new relationships that last for quite a while. So apparently, the fourth time the fourth was the time charm. Is the charm <laughs> for both of them. Yes. So Burgess and Cara are married for forty-six years. Yeah. That's amazing. Until his death, I think, in nineteen ninety-seven. And then Paulette marries, like you said, a fourth time to the novelist Eric Maria Remarque, who wrote All Quiet on the Western Front. And they were married until his death in 1970. Yeah, so fourth time's a charm. Fourth time is the charm. Okay, good to know. I got three more. (laughs) (laughs) All right, our last epic fail that we're going to talk about is one that I didn't know a lot about, but this was a fascinating story. This is a doozy. This is Shirley Temple and John Agar. Yes. Who knew that Shirley Temple was married to someone before Mr. Black? I know. We all know her as Shirley Temple Black, but right. for a brief time, I think five years, she was Shirley Temple Agar. Now, you know, you mentioned mothers being close to some of the starlets, and, and I just say that as a backdrop Ooh, to perhaps yes. the complications of a relationship. This mother definitely complicates things big time. Yes, you yes. Because, you, know, you know, we all know Shirley Temple. She was one of Hollywood's most iconic iconic, legendary child stars. Beloved. Yeah. Well, she actually met her first husband, John Agar, when she was only 15 and he was 22. So let's just start there. Yeah, let's start there. (laughs) That shouldn't have happened. Now she meets, she's going to Westlake High School here in Hollywood, right? Yes, she is. She is. And and at the time, it's interesting for her career-wise because she's struggling to make that transition into adulthood. So she had been like the darling of cinema for so many years and now she's become a teenager it's a really tough transition for her so she goes to high school as you said at Westlake right right and 
Agar's sister is a schoolmate yes. of Shirley Temple's, and Shirley has a party at, once again, David Oselznik's house to go to, and she needs an escort. Is that, am well, I getting that right? And I've heard a couple of variations okay. of this story, because I went and read parts of Shirley Temple's biography, biography. and uh, John Agar actually has a biography that he dictated to an author. Oh, wow. And they met. I think the party is true, but they uh, initially met because next door to Shirley Temple and her very overprotective parents, Gertrude right. and George Temple, lived an incredible character actress named Zazu Pitts. Oh, Zazu Pitts. Yes, who we all know and yes. love. And John Agar and his family were family friends with the Pitts. So that's how she first so met So John him. comes over to visit Zazu Pitts, and he meets Shirley for the first time. Wow. Then I keep going back to the fact that she was 15 and he was 22. But there was an attraction, and I think a romance started blooming from there. Okay. And I think their first date might have been this party. This at party at Selznick's. That makes sense. Yeah. So they start dating. And well, you know, another, I just want to interject yeah, this because I find this fascinating. And I read this in Shirley Temple's biography. She even admits that when she was a student at Westlake School for Girls, she became obsessed with being the first girl in her class to be, to be engaged. engaged. I read that too. Yeah. So I read it, that too. So I think she had a mission. She did. And, and I think also she wanted to prove to her parents and maybe to the world as a whole, that she wasn't a child anymore. She right. was an adult, and she was going to prove it, and she was going to get herself married. I so understand that. I mean, she, she, I think, has been described in some of the research I was looking at as this strong-willed, chain-smoking teenager. Yeah, yeah. But it makes sense, because her whole life was about the good ship lollipop. Being the, the good girl. And I want to prove to you that I have more to give than that. On those same lines, when John Agar finally proposes to her, they're out parking, Parking, uh -huh. I love that. Aww. And when he proposes <laughs> to her, do that I know does anybody park <laughs> without getting killed? But when he proposes to her, she's wearing a promise ring from another guy oh, boy. as he proposes to her. So sure, wow. Shirley was, you know, hedging her bets. Yes, she was. <laughs> but she did say in her biography that the first guy's ring was just a mere granite or stone, whereas John gave her a diamond. So she decided to go with a diamond. Go with a diamond. Go with diamond. So they get married September 19th, 1945. That's yes. what I had. Her mother wanted her to wait till she was 18. Right. But impetuous kids, they couldn't. So they, she waited till she was 17. They couldn't, yeah. <laughs> Well, the funny things about their wedding, too, I'll just yeah. interject this a little bit, was they, John and Shirley, wanted a very simple, intimate wedding. But then David Oselznik found out about it, and he turned it into a spectacular, over-the-top PR event with of photographers course, and reporters. Of course, because it's Shirley and, Temple yeah. getting married. Yes. That, that would have been big news. Of course. He wasn't going to miss out on an opportunity, I'm sure. Right. They do end up having a child, Linda Susan, yes. in 48. But during this time, well, th there's a lot happening. There's a lot going on yeah. that I think that doomed this, this marriage. And the first thing I think that happened was that John Agar got out of the Navy. Yeah. He had no real career career ambition whatsoever. He had right. no career plan. 
it really made him angry. He was being called Mr. Shirley Temple. You know what? Too bad. Yeah, exactly. And so <laughs> to make matters worse, Mama and Papa Temple sort of strong-armed them into moving back home with them. But they don't live in the main house. Oh, this this is great. They live in Shirley Temple's playhouse. No, they do yes, not. Yes, that she played in as a child. But, you know, fortunately, they had converted it into at least a livable guest house. Right. But they lived in Shirley Temple's playhouse. 50 yards from, from the mommy watchful and eyes of mommy and daddy, Well, which could not have been easy for John no, Agar. <laughs> that would have been really difficult. I will say it, it's pretty slick what ends up happening, though, with David Oselznik giving him yes. a contract, a five-year contract, including acting lessons. Yes. And it's funny because Selznick met Agar at the wedding and he had Shirley Temple under contract. So Shirley Temple in her biography says this was all done without her knowledge, without her consent and behind her back. But Selznick approached Agar and said, what are you going to do with yourself? And he said, I don't really know. And Selznick says, have you ever thought about film acting? He goes, no, not really. He goes, do you want to <laughs> take a screen test? And Agar takes a screen test. Obviously, Selznick liked what he saw because he put him under contract. Because he put him under contract. It made Shirley furious. Well, because she was you know it, dealing with her own crumbling career. It makes me furious. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but you know he was making 150 bucks a week, which I think at that point any employment would have been oh, yes. a good thing for the marriage. And you know he's in some. Pretty interesting films. I mean, Ford Apache. With well, that was his screen debut. Can you imagine? Yes. Like, you start your career. With John Wayne. With John Wayne and In a John, John Ford. Ford. Yes. Yeah, but And also, your love interest is Shirley Temple. Is Shirley Temple. Which I think that was so fortuitous, you know, yeah. that that was his film debut. I mean, yeah. he really started his career with a bang. And also, John Wayne took a liking to Agar. And really took him under his wing and helped shepherd his career. Agar went on to appear, I think, five more John Wayne movies. Like, she wore a yellow yeah. ribbon and the Sands, Sands of, of Iwo Jima. Jima. And well, he, but he also introduced him to his hard-living, hard-drinking yes. fraternity of men, which included John Ford and Ward Bond yep. and Victor McLaglen. So yeah. this is what starts things a little rocky. Right. I mean, Agar, one of the things I read about him, he he's quoted as saying he blames John Wayne for introducing him to alcohol and tobacco. And I'm like, mm, okay, yeah, but you had a choice there. So. Well, he did. And it's funny because in, in the other, the biography I read of him, he blames the pressure of Mr. and Mrs. Temple for his drinking. Okay. He never really takes ownership for yeah. his drinking, which... Um, yeah, that's interesting. Not so, not so cool. So this drinking brings out, in one of the things I I saw in her autobiography this unpredictable temper that the alcohol would induce, and it exploded oftentimes into violence. It did, and he was arrested a couple of times for drunk driving, which, you know, just did not help matters. And, you know, even with trying to raise a daughter together, it did not help the marriage. So they decided, I think maybe a last-ditch effort, that maybe they should work together again. So they make a second movie together. Okay. um, Which was called Adventure in Baltimore. Okay. Anybody? (laughs) Never heard of it? Haven't seen it. Well, it was this lackluster drama about the suffrage movement with Robert Young starring in it. And it was a big bomb. It did nothing for Shirley's career. In fact, I think she made two more films and then retired. She was done. Okay. And then for Agar, his career started off strong, but then eventually his career slid into B-rate movies, usually war pictures or science fiction movies like Tarantula in 1955 and The Mole People in 1956. 
So it's just a mess between them. Yeah. So after four years of marriage, Temple files for divorce. Yes. She accuses Agar of mental cruelty, and she was actually granted sole custody of their daughter. Yes, she, she was. And then while they're waiting for their divorce to become final, which right. it took a year, she takes a trip to Hawaii and she meets Charles Black, this very wealthy businessman. So she falls in love. And so she is just watching the clock, waiting for that divorce to become final so right. she can marry Charles Black. Okay. After the divorce was finally final, I think it was 12 days later, she marries Black. The next year, Agar marries a model named Loretta Combs in Las Vegas. Okay. But apparently he was too drunk to do the marriage the first time. So oh. the, the minister made him wait and sober up to come back and get married. But then the kind of tragic part to me is that once Shirley Temple married Charles Black, she asked John on Agar to let Charles Black adopt their daughter, Susan, take his name, which surprisingly, Agar agreed to. Yeah. And I think at the time he was probably a mess. I think he was a raging alcoholic and had financial problems. And he says in his biography, his autobiography, that he just didn't have money to fight Shirley Temple. Yeah. And so he just basically gave his daughter away. Well, Shirley Temple Black was married to Charles Black for 55 years. Nice. And actually, John Agar did eventually clean himself up and got sober, and he remained married to Combs for 49 years. You know what? That was second time's the charm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this has been a really interesting subject matter for Valentine's Month. <laughs> so go kiss your partner. My God. <laughs> yeah. I think it's time for the answer to our Hollywood pop quiz. Yes. And the question involved Ernest Borgnine and Ethel Merman, one of the most mismatched couples ever. And the question was, who was Ernest Borgnine married to just before he married Ethel Merman? All right. Who was it? It was the wonderful Mexican actress, Katie Gerardo, who we all know from High Noon. Yeah, She played Gary Cooper's scorned lover, who oh, wow. has no time for that Quaker girl, Grace Kelly. <laughs> and they weren't married for... They weren't married very long. Yeah. So Ernest, I think Ernest ended up being married five times until he finally met Tova, his wife, who he was married to for decades. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening, everyone. If you would follow us on social media, we would love that. We'll give you previews of what's happening in the future on the podcast. You can follow us with the handle at From Beneath the Hollywood sign on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Or if you have any questions or comments or great stories about Ernest Borgnine, <laughs> we would love to hear from you. So please email us at info from beneath the Hollywood sign.com. That's this week's view. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. You've been listening to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign with Steve Kubine and Nan McNamara, the podcast that celebrates amazing stories of Tinseltown from its golden era. Join us next week for another episode and learn something else about Hollywood you probably never knew. Take a moment and give us a five-star rating and a positive review. And tell your friends about us, too. It'll help grow the podcast. Visit Steve's website at FromBeneathTheHollywoodSign.com. The executive producers are Steve Kubine and Nan McNamara. Executive producer and post-production supervisor, Lindsay Schneebly. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like The Box of Oddities and The Shallow End with Schneebly and Toth. Copyright 2024. All rights reserved. That's a wrap.
Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.